Good morning, Redeemer. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter three. As you're turning there, I want to begin by asking a question. How will God's truth continue to stand in a world that is collapsing under the devil's lies? How will God's truth continue to stand in a world that is collapsing under the devil's lies? In today's world, asking the question, where can I find the truth, seems to have no real answers. And even more devastating is to witness churches and professing Christians exchanging God's truth for the devil's lies. This was happening in Ephesus, and it is happening in churches today, even in Graham, Texas. In his classic work, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis brilliantly illustrates this from the perspective of a demon named Screwtape writing to his nephew and tempter-in-training, Wormwood. And as he's encouraging Wormwood in one of his letters, Screwtape tells him, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. And so the church must choose either to align itself with the world, or to align itself with the word. Redeemer, if we as Christians will not hold fast to God's truth, who else will? Lord willing, in our passage this morning, we will see the Lord's ordered plan to preserve his truth through his household, the local church. So if you're willing and able, please stand with me as I read our passage for this morning. First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober minded, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, 
But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Order in God's Household. And here is the gospel truth that will help guide us through 1 Timothy chapter 3. If we want to be faithful in God's house, we must uphold his truth. If we want to be faithful in God's house, we together must uphold his truth. But before we begin walking through this passage, let's go before the Lord again in prayer. Father, we need you and we thank you that you are present among us this morning as we worship you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We pray that you would help all of us this morning to better understand your word and to better understand you and our calling as members of your household. We pray for you to be glorified and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this chapter of his letter to Timothy, Paul demonstrates three main characteristics of a faithful church that is committed to God's truth alone. The first of these characteristics is that the church is led by his good supervisors. Led by his good supervisors. This comes in verses 1 through 7. This is the well-known list of elder or overseer qualifications. And this is one of just two lists in the New Testament, the other being found in Titus chapter 1. So without these lists, we would be missing key biblical teaching on what makes a good supervisor in God's household. And we see that it's not simply just what they do, leading and supervising the body of Christ, but who they are. Another way of saying this is that God is chiefly concerned with the character of his leaders. And the first thing that Paul tells us about these men is that they aspire to this office. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And you may have noticed that interesting phrase that Paul begins with. The saying is trustworthy. We've actually heard that phrase before in 1 Timothy. A couple months ago in the passage that Pete preached, Paul says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So when Paul uses this phrase, the saying is trustworthy, he's telling Timothy, What I'm about to say to you is tried and true. And these are early beliefs about Christ and his church that early Christians were already beginning to hold on to. But what does it mean to aspire to this office? 
I love the answer that David Mathis gives to this question. He says that Christ grabs his pastors by the heart. He doesn't twist them by the arm. So this aspiration is a God-given desire to take part in the leadership of Christ's church. That's why Paul says that for anyone who desires this task, this is a noble task. Another way to say this is that they desire a, a good work. But if the nature of the work itself is good, this requires that God's supervisors, the leaders in these positions, also be good. To be more specific, these men are held to God's standards of good leadership. And we know from other passages of Scripture that Paul himself was deeply acquainted with the Ephesian elders. In Acts 20.28, he gives this charge to these same elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul's appeal to the elders is weighty, right? These men were appointed to leadership over God's church by the Holy Spirit, over the people that God has purchased through the blood of his beloved son. So yes, this work is certainly good, but it's not something that God's supervisors are to take lightly. They must always remember that they are called to shepherd God's blood-bought people in the power of the Spirit. And notice who Paul first tells the elders to pay careful attention to, themselves. And Paul calls Timothy to this same standard later in this book, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. He says, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And we should understand that one of the ways that elders are to watch themselves is by examining their lives in light of these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. And this list isn't just given to the elders, it's given to the whole church in Ephesus so that the whole church might know what their leaders ought to look like and the standards to which they are held accountable. So I would ask you, church, what are your standards for leadership in God's house? If we are to faithfully uphold God's truth, we must be ruled by his standards. And these bear just as much weight for us today in Graham, Texas, as they did for the Ephesians. But if God's standards for leadership are to be applicable for us today, then they must be narrow and specific. Right? But at the same time, if it's to apply to churches all throughout time, then in another sense, they must also be broad. So they're both narrow and broad. In this way, it would be similar to one of Paul's lists of sins that he would have in other New Testament passages. Though he doesn't list every single sin imaginable, all sin can be traced back to that specific list. So when it comes to this list of character qualities in 1 Timothy 3, we should be able to observe these specific characteristics in our leaders as well as other characteristics that would naturally flow out from there. So for example, although Paul does not explicitly say here in this passage that elders should be devoted to prayer and studying God's word, this would naturally be present in the life of a man who is sober-minded and self-controlled. 
And the elders' ability to lead the church in teaching certainly requires that they would know the scriptures well. We also don't see that elders should promote peace and unity in the body, but this is certainly implied by the qualities of not being violent or quarrelsome. So these are things that naturally flow out of these core character traits. And in many ways, the character of these supervisors falls under the umbrella of the first trait, which is that they be above reproach. This describes a life that is marked by integrity and faithfulness. Now, don't misunderstand me. This does not imply perfection or sinlessness. But their faithfulness ought to be evident and increasing in the power of the Spirit. Let's just think briefly about how this idea of faithfulness runs through the next several qualifications that follow above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife, or more literally, a one-woman man. This implies a life that is marked by marital faithfulness, where the husband is wholly devoted to his wife and none other. Or if he is unmarried, he is marked by purity and self-control. And further, he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, as opposed to what? As opposed to a drunkard who is driven by violence and greed. This kind of man described in 1 Timothy 3 has a reputation of being faithful in his thinking, in his speech, in his actions, in such a way that he invites the respect and company of others. Why? Because he is serving them and not himself. That's the contrast that, that Paul is setting up here. These are men who are devoted to serving others in God's house. And of course, he must be able to teach. He must be marked by faithfulness in his teaching of God's word. And we do need to spend a little bit more time on this qualification, just given the significance of teaching in the ministry of the elders. It is central to their task. So central, in fact, that one author even points out that Paul places it right in the middle of this list. There's 15 qualifications. Able to teach comes right in at number eight. So even structurally, Paul is is guiding our vision to see the importance of this task that they teach God's word. And remember, the main idea of this whole passage is that our faithfulness as a church in God's house, is determined by upholding his truth. And the elders' teaching of God's word is one of the most significant ways that this happens in the church. Even if we just take preaching as an example of this kind of teaching, every Sunday that we sit under the preaching of God's word, we are corporately agreeing there is only one truth that is exalted above any other thing. That's the truth found on the pages of this book, on the pages of Scripture. So if Redeemer Church wants to be faithful in upholding God's truth, we can never forsake the importance of the teaching of God's word. We ought to praise the Lord for the faithful teaching that we regularly receive from our elders at Redeemer and pray for the Lord to raise up even more faithful men to this task. To quote David Mathis again, the question for all of us is not whether we will have leaders, but who 
they will be. And whether they will lead us toward the real Jesus or subtly, stealthily, away from him. Brothers and sisters, this must be our greatest concern for our leaders. Who will be the men that will lead us in upholding God's truth? Do their lives reflect the godly character that is displayed in this passage? The importance of these questions is drawn out in the depth that Paul spends in the remaining qualifications. In verses 4 through 5, Paul raises the stakes of leadership from the earthly household to the spiritual household, God's church. And the argument is fairly simple. If a man is not faithful in his own house, he won't be faithful in God's house. And I want us to notice how Paul uses the words manage and care. He uses both of these words to describe God's good supervisors. It's not one or the other. The question is not, will he be a leader or will he care for the flock? No. In God's household, true shepherds are caring leaders. So Paul assumes that a man who manages his own household well is doing so with care towards his wife and his children. And the same is true for the ones that are leading in God's household. This is the leadership that is marked by care. Now, at this point in the passage, I think it's helpful for us to observe that none of these qualifications are evident in the man's life immediately. Measuring this faithfulness takes wisdom, patience, and time. And this is why Paul next warns against installing elders that are new converts. This literally means newly planted. So if you think about the parable of the soils that Jesus gives in the Gospels, this is like the seed that that falls on rocky ground that springs up quickly, but then is scorched by the sun because there was no root and there was no good soil. Rather, these men are to be like the seed that is planted in good soil, firmly rooted in the Lord and his word. So that this body, even those outside the body, can witness godly fruit in their lives. Because what more would Satan love than for God's supervisors to fall into his grip? Remember the question we began with. How will God's truth continue to stand in a world collapsing under the devil's lies? What if those collapsing under his lies are leaders in the church? I think this is why Paul closes the elder qualifications with these warnings against the devil's sinister plot to entangle God's leaders in his lies. Because even the devil knows the significant role that these men play in the church's mission to uphold God's truth. And beloved, this is why the character of these elders is so vital. God's truth must prevail, and this will not happen apart from the good leadership of God's supervisors. But these men are not the only ones that help the church remain faithful in upholding God's truth. So his household is led by his good supervisors, and secondly, it is helped by his good servants. Helped by his good servants. In verses 8 through 13. 
So we've seen the office of leadership in God's house, the elders. And now we move into the office of servanthood, the office of deacon. Or as we could refer to them based on their specific responsibilities, supervisors and servants. And God has designed this role of deacons to come alongside and support the elders' leadership and supervision over the local church. If we think back to Acts 6, when the deacons were first chosen, they were charged with caring for neglected widows. Why? So that the apostles could continue focusing on the ministry of the word and prayer. So there are specific needs of service in the local church that the deacons are responsible for in order to support the elders' shepherding and leadership. Now, given the significant role that deacons also play, the Lord is just as concerned about their character as he is with the elders. And many of these qualifications are very similar, such as dignified, not addicted to much wine, greedy for dishonest gain, blameless, and so forth. And because of the significant overlap between uh, these character traits, I want to devote more time looking at what distinguishes these two offices. In verse 9, Paul tells us that these deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, since deacons are not the ones that are in the teaching office, this might seem like a strange thing for Paul to say at first. But if we think about it, if deacons are to come alongside and support the ministry of the elders, the ones who are responsible for teaching, then it certainly makes sense for them to be well-versed in the truths of the scriptures. As John Calvin once said, it would be exceedingly absurd to hold a public office in the church while they were ill-informed in the Christian faith. We should say amen to that. And I think that another implication of the deacons holding this mystery of the faith with a clear conscience would be that the elders and deacons are in doctrinal agreement as they partner together in ministry. And this is where a church covenant and a confession of faith become so important. Here at Redeemer Church, both of these documents help all of our members in our agreement to God's truth as we partner together in this local church. And this is certainly true for those in this body who are entrusted with these tasks of supervising and serving God's house in these ways. And similar to the elders, deacons are held to a higher standard. And that's why Paul says that deacons also should endure a season of testing of their character, as we see in verse 10. Looking back at Acts 6, again, where deacons were first chosen, these men were those with good reputations, full of the Spirit and wisdom. In other words, they had a track of reliance upon the Spirit's wisdom and not their own. And this would only be true of men who were already tested in their character and were already holding this mystery of the faith that we saw in verse 9. But then we arrive at an important question in verse 11. Is the office of deacon reserved only for men? Well, based on the restrictions of women teaching and exercising authority in 1 Timothy 2.12, the passage that we studied last time in 1 Timothy, we saw that the office of elder is clearly closed to women. And hopefully this became even more clear as we walk through the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 this morning. 
But when it comes to deacons, since this is a service role in the church that does not involve teaching, it becomes less clear. For example, if you're reading the ESV this morning, you might see a tiny little number above that phrase, their wives likewise, in verse 11. This takes you to a footnote at the bottom of the page that says, or women likewise. The reason for this other possible translation is that the words wife and woman are the same word in Greek. So translation is based on the context of the passage. And for this reason, among others, there's less agreement among commentators as whether or not women can serve as deacons. Some have pointed out that if Paul were intending to speak to deacons' wives here, then we may have also expected him to give qualifications for elders' wives as well. And given that Paul uses the word likewise when shifting from this office of elder to deacon, it could also make sense for him to use the same word, likewise, to shift to women who are serving in the same office, as opposed to simply referring to their wives. But a fair argument from the other side also points out that the language of husband of one wife comes back again in verse 12, which is clearly a reference to male deacons. But that being said, it's possible for it to be more coherent for Paul to be describing the same office, shifting from men to women back to men, as opposed to shifting from men to their wives and back to men. Now, all I'm hoping to help you see, and I hope it has been helpful, is that it is possible that this verse is referring to deaconesses. Faithful Christians disagree over this issue, and it is less clear in 1 Timothy, as I've said, than the male-exclusive office of elder. And just as we saw in our last passage in 1 Timothy, if we want to grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures, we must carefully wrestle with these questions, depending upon the help of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'm comforted that the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Don't you just love Peter? I'm comforted by that as a preacher. We all need the Spirit's help to understand his word. Amen? So whether or not Paul is referring only to male deacons in this passage, there's no question that Paul believes this office is vital to the church's mission of upholding God's truth. And this becomes especially clear as he closes out this section of qualifications in verse 13. Where he says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Earlier in 1 Timothy 1, we heard of false teachers who swerved from the faith. And where were they finding their confidence? They were finding them, their confidence in themselves. And here Paul is highlighting the beauty of servants who are finding their confidence in Christ, and in him alone. And this is true even in a ministry that is often behind the scenes. Many times we don't even see the work that the deacons are doing behind the scenes. But their confidence is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. Not in themselves, not in anyone else, but in Christ alone. And I think Paul closing in this way elevates the significance of of these servants in God's house, and they shouldn't be seen as second class to the elders. 
Because verses 1 through 13, this whole section, is framed by the goodness of both of these works. Remember, those who aspire to be elders desire a good work. And now Paul is saying those who serve well in deacons gain themselves a good standing for themselves. But why are these good works? Because it is God who has designed his household to function in this way. It is good because God has designed it this way. And as we close out these qualifications, it's important for us to say that nearly all the qualifications we've looked at so far should be true of all of God's members in his household. As they look to the exemplary character modeled by God's supervisors and his servants. Because if the church is to be faithful in upholding God's truth, it requires the work of all of the members of God's household. As they are led by his good supervisors, served by his good servants, and as the whole church is dedicated to his great story. Verses 14 through 16, dedicated to his great story. So from all the way back in 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul has been aiming at these last three verses. All of Paul's instructions up until this point on prayer, conduct of men and women, qualifications for elders and deacons have followed the path to this target. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul's reason for this letter and indeed his understanding of the church's identity and mission now takes center stage. And we see that the church belongs to the living God, the eternal one. It is the only true God who has established the church's mission as a pillar and buttress of the truth. But why a pillar and a buttress? might seem like strange images, maybe something we don't think about often. But these structures are dedicated to strengthening and supporting a building. Vertically, the pillar, and horizontally, the buttresses or braces. For example, we could think of the massive buttresses that support the walls of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, or the impressive pillars that hold up the Capitol building in D.C., Paul is using this imagery to illustrate that the church strengthens and supports something far more important than any building, God's truth. As a pillar, the church lifts his truth high for all the world to see. And as a buttress, the church reinforces God's truth. But I want us to see that although Paul is using building imagery here, he's not limiting the church to a physical Structure. Because fundamentally the church is not a building. It is a people. Anytime that Paul uses building imagery in his letters, he is describing God's people. For example, in Galatians 2.9, he refers to Peter, James, and John as pillars of the gospel. The same word here in 1 Timothy 3.15. And of course, his most well-known example in Ephesians 2.19-22. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I hope that we're grasping just how unbelievable this is. That the purpose of the Old Testament temple has been fulfilled. And God's New Testament temple is his people. It's his people who uphold his truth as a pillar and a buttress. As one commentator said, the living God has established his church to display the embodiment of his truth. But beloved, this truth is not some abstract reality. Rather, it is the entire story of God's salvation that is brought to fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must ask, how do we continue to pass along this story of salvation? As the church, we confess this beautiful, mysterious truth of our Savior. And by mysterious, I'm not you know, talking about strange, ooh, mysterious. No, we should think along the lines of Colossians 1. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in our scripture reading this morning from Matthew 16, we saw Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say in response? Do you remember? On this rock, I will build my church. So from the very beginning, the church has been built on her confession of Jesus Christ. And now, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, the Apostle Paul gives an even fuller confession of who Jesus is than Peter even knew at the time. Beloved, the work of God's supervisors and servants is certainly good, but listen to me. The work of God's Son is great. The eternal Son of God, the very embodiment of godliness, took on human flesh, atoned for our sins through his death on the cross, was raised in power, vindicated by the Spirit through his resurrection, and ascended into glory where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. His work is complete. And dedication to this great story of God's truth is the church's mission until the end of time. And his truth will not fail. Can I get an amen? And even old Uncle Screwtape knew this to be true. Although he told Wormwood of allies within the church, he says this to Wormwood immediately after. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. Beloved, we must be faithful to upholding God's truth. This is how the truth will continue to stand in a world that is collapsing under the devil's lies. And we must always remember the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, we praise you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great work that you have done on our behalf. Would you make us continually more into a church that is 
dedicated to this great story, this story of salvation that you have accomplished for us. Oh Lord, as we continue in worship this morning, as we go forth today, would we be reminded of how glorious your truth is. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.